I'm going to do a little just intro on the book. I know Greg did too, but just highlight a few things. That this book is really just a letter that Paul wrote to Titus. And it reads a little like a letter. When I think of letters, I don't know what you think of. My mom used to sit us down when we were kids once a month to write a letter to Grandma. Did anyone have to do that? I don't know. Maybe you did. Well, we would sit down and have to write it, and you just sit there and like try to think of something to write. But we're now in like this 280-character generation for Twitter. It doubled this month. It's not 140 anymore. So we're used to just quick snippets of information. But back when you wrote a letter, I used to think of that. It took some time and effort to sit down and write it out and find a paper and pencil and nice enough paper. It took a few days to get there in the mail. You had to pay for a stamp. And so it was kind of a bigger deal to write something. And so when you wrote a letter, you just would span a lot of topics. When you wrote Grandma, you'd say, thanks for sending brownies this month. We really liked them. We shared them with some friends. You'd talk about how school was going, what your grades were on some tests. We'd tell her how our swim meets were going. Give her an update on the dog, because I think she needed one every month. Um, tell her if you'd gone on any trips or camping trips. Just tell her you're looking forward to Thanksgiving, and you'd send it off. And when I look at this letter to Titus, in some ways it reads a little like that. It's not just one topic and really focused. In some ways it, it reads like a letter. Uh, and Paul had uh, his disciple, a friend Titus, and it spanned a number of topics. And a little context on why is Paul writing Titus? Why did he feel the need to write this letter? Well, Titus was a disciple of Paul. And he went on a number of trips with him, sharing the gospel, one of his missionary journeys, just traveling around sharing in different towns. So Galatians 2 talks about Paul bringing him into Jerusalem, into a church that was just kind of foreman, and they had these Jews that had converted and become Christians, and they had Gentiles that had become Christians, and they were trying to sort out, how do we do church together, and, and how many of those old Jewish customs do we need to hang on to as Christians, and how do we bring Greeks into that, and they had a mess, and... They were working it out. Second um, Corinthians talks about Titus coming with to the Corinthians church and trying to sort out some things there. Uh, it talks in Second Corinthians 7 that Titus was a refreshment to them, an encouragement to them when he was with them. In Second uh, Corinthians 8, it talks about Titus collecting money to give to other churches that were in need, uh, and just a generosity in giving to other churches, and that he had some part in uh, just collecting that money and, and presenting the need and delivering it. And then Paul and Titus preached the gospel on the island of Crete, and a number of people came to become Christians and believe and were kind of scattered around in different cities from traveling around there. And Paul took off and kept going. And he left Titus there to oversee these people and figure out how to bring them together. And so this letter is to Titus in a lot of ways... It's just an encouragement to him. How do you take all these people that responded to the gospel in all these cities and go on with life and establish churches? And so in that context, the letter started with the first week we did this series. Greg talked about, we need pastors in these cities. Go to each of those cities and find good men in those cities that are men of character and raise them up in plurality and help them lead those churches. You're not just traveling around trying to pastor all these churches. And then he gave some instructions on specific things to teach older men and older women and younger men and younger women. Just how do you live life? How do you be people of character? 
And then he had some teachings on slaves. Some people were slaves and came into the church and they had to figure out how do you encourage them and teach them? And how do you teach with sound doctrine and hold on to things? And I want to set that up a little bit just to take context of this letter. That really it was just a letter of how do you shepherd this body of believers? How do you establish these churches? And, and writing to Titus to be strong in some of those things. And so some things in this letter can seem overly strong to us. They can seem not exactly in line with our culture or their culture then even. But the heart was just how do you go shepherd these people into healthy churches that are going to last and honor Christ and be healthy? And so over the span of this whole letter, there's a few topics, and it's all over the place. And even in this one chapter, there's kind of weaves a little, and there's three different topics, and we're not even going to hit all of them today. But that's just a little context to think about. It's just an encouragement to him to establish healthy churches. Now let's pray, and, and we'll jump in a little bit to this chapter here. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this family of believers here at the firehouse and we're thankful for this church. We're thankful that you give us your word. And um, God, we certainly could use growth in figuring out how do we honor you as a church? How do we grow together? Crete's a little different than Denver Highlands, but I think we can use those encouragements here. And God, we just pray you'd, you'd teach us today. Your spirit would be active and at work in us, and you'd help us each respond to your word and help us respond to your word together in a way that brings you honor. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Alright, so this first section here we're just going to read through really talks in depth about the mercy of God. And it's I think he put this in this letter just because as, as a young church and forming and even in the Christian life, they needed to understand the mercy of God and understand how to live in light of it. So let's just read here. It says, Once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But... When God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. So out of the gate, one thing to highlight in this section is that it's not a lot of commands. A lot of it is just about understanding the mercy of God, and then he kind of just gets to one command at the end of it. Some of Paul's letters read a little more like, do this, do that, do that, even different chapters than this. But here he had something just to be understanding the mercy of God and how that might move us and affect us. As I think about just the overarching point in this section of Scripture, really it boils down to that we need to understand the mercy of God and be thankful for it and have it move us towards good works that honor God. And if you go to the next side here, first Paul really deals with just an understanding that that mercy had been extended to us. Because I think there's a temptation to forget the mercy of God altogether. And so we review verse 3 there. 
It said, once we too were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. And so the the bullet point below there was that we need to understand the condition we were in when God reached out to us. Each of us were in a state of need. It didn't matter, it doesn't matter what age you were, what nationality or gender or your financial status, when God called you, we were each in a state of need. And I especially think of the writer here, thinking of Paul. Uh, the next slide here is how he described himself and his tradition that he was brought up in, in Philippians, the letter to that church. He wrote this. He said, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as far as righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. And I write this because the recipient of this letter, Titus, was Greek and was converted as an adult to be a believer in Jesus Christ. So just totally different backgrounds. And the first few verses of this book, and even the um, title of our message here, Titus the True Son, he describes himself that way. Titus was his true son in the faith. They saw themselves that way together. But it's significant here that Paul writes um, that we were foolish and disobedient, and he put them together. We were misled and slaves of lusts and pleasures. We were full of envy and evil. We hated each other. The Pharisee trying to hold God's law to a T, and the Greek Gentile in a culture known for false gods and government and philosophical thought were the same before God. I think of my wife and I, we have just different backgrounds. She was in a family that knew God. She was saved as a child when she was seven or eight years old and came to know Christ. She was spared from some things that some of us might have done. She was spared from partying and boys and being as foolish in high school and college. I didn't turn my life over to God until college. And so I'll talk a little bit about my background, but there was just a lot more years of foolishness. But God showed his mercy to both of us. Because it's about his mercy, not how we were acting. We were both dead in our sins. And it didn't matter how long we lived away from God. God's mercy was extended to both of us the same. And I just want to share a little bit about my life and just where I was at when God's mercy found me. Just because that's how... I read that verse and interpret it. Just think of where where was I at when God's mercy found me? And I think each of us should read it that way. And when God called me and kind of found me, I knew the story of the gospel. I heard at a teen camp in middle school, I don't know why I went to it, but I went to this church camp over a weekend up like a ski conference out by a ski resort. And, and I heard the message of the gospel and received it. And I think I understood enough that I inherited eternal life and would go be with God in heaven and and understood that message. But then I left that teen conference. I wasn't really involved in church at all and just went back to doing what I was doing before. It didn't change anything. I was a heavy drinker in high school and early college. I had access to alcohol at home. In high school, I made friends with a girl in her 20s that worked right next to me. 
Um, and she would throw parties and she would buy me alcohol. And so I had this kind of open window to get my hands on it, even as a teenager. Um, I worked at a, a video store. And I know that dates me because those don't exist anymore. <laughs> we just have YouTube and Netflix. But I worked at a video store. If you drive by it, it's now a Home Depot. But I consumed a lot of entertainment because I had access to just take anything home from the video store I wanted to. I was bitter and strained in my relationships, just with virtually everyone. I was really bitter and and had hard relationships with my parents, with my siblings. I was kind of a loner and didn't have a lot of friends. Uh, A song I really connected with, this is not spiritual at all, but it's a song called... um, Coming Down Sunday Morning by Johnny Cash. You go to this next slide. Uh, I didn't put the very start of the song on it. It says, I woke up Sunday morning and there was no way to hold my head that didn't hurt. I relate with that a lot. And, and this here, I didn't, I didn't do some of the drugs he talks about here, but it was mostly drinking. But he says, on a Sunday morning sidewalk, I'm wishing, Lord, that I was stoned because there's something in a Sunday that makes a body feel alone. And there's nothing short of dying that's half as lonesome as the sound of the sleeping city sidewalk on Sunday morning coming down. Sundays are a little different now, but I remember Sundays. Sundays were kind of a really hard day. You'd wake up and after kind of two nights or sometimes three nights of heavy drinking, there's no way to hold your head that's not hurting and it pounds and the light and... I remember some of them. I remember one specific weekend drinking so much I just fell asleep in a bed there and woke up and tried to watch the Bronco game and needed a drink just to kind of wake up and get along with the day. My brothers and I had this theory that if you started drinking in the morning, it would help get rid of the hangover. I don't know. I think it's just what you say when you're addicted to alcohol. And Sundays were tough. I think of that just because you kind of had to stop and deal with homework and I had to go home to my mom's house and and deal with a little more structure in life and um, it was just kind of a sad time I so I connect with that and that's the context when I read that verse and I think about once we too were foolish and disobedient we were misled and became slaves to our lusts and pleasures and our lives were full of evil and envy and we hated each other I relate to that verse And ultimately, I think we each should. Your life might have looked a little different, but we each should relate to that. Whether we were saved at 5 or 15 or 25 or 50. I have a friend that's a pastor that understood he needed Jesus as a young boy of stealing because he stole a matchbox car from one of his siblings. He tells it very dramatically if he's sharing it. He has a little tract he hands out to his friends that says he got saved after he stole a car. You've got to read all the way through it that it was a matchbox and he was like six years old. It's good, good showmanship, but it doesn't matter. We, our sins are the same before God. And Greg talked last week about all those things we try to be made right with God and get good before him. Our good works. We try religion. You think just showing up at church is going to do it, or, or good philosophy and thinking deep about things, or just doing the best we can because we got nothing else to try. But all those things fall short. In Isaiah, it said our sins separate us from our God. And as church to the Romans, 
Paul says the wages of those sins are death. So what we deserve is death before God and we deserve separation. And it's in light of understanding that that we look at the second part of this verse that it's the mercy of God that pulled us out of that and it's something to be thankful for. It's probably a good theme to be thinking about Thanksgiving week. And so the second point about mercy is at the bottom there. But it says, Be thankful that God acted with mercy towards each of us. Because we each deserved that death. We deserved separation from God. We deserved eternal punishment. And that's even the context of the next few verses in here. It says, When God our Savior revealed His kindness and love, He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins, gave us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because of His grace, He made us right in His sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. You know, when you get married, you realize you have very different traditions you grew up in, and it's kind of weird to go to holidays at your in-law's house. My Thanksgiving was kind of scattered and chaos, and all I wanted to do was just sit down and watch football, and my mom was trying to get us to turn off the TV of the whole holiday because we were supposed to do family time. And the main event was just getting that dinner out, and it was the food, and it was the football, and the family time, and playing some board games. When I went to my first Thanksgiving at my in-laws, they have a little more in Christian traditions, but they sat down around the table and we had to each share something we were thankful for that year, and there was like prayer. I was a little wigged out by that. I was like, whoa, holidays can be spiritual too. But if you have a family where they go around the table and say what you should be thankful for, God's mercy towards us. Here's a free answer. It's like the cliff notes. So if that's on your to-do list for the week, I think it's going to need to be on mine. There's an easy answer. You can take one thing off on a busy week. But this is the understanding Paul had when he could say about himself, the religious Jew who tried to keep all the laws, and the Greek, that they were both foolish, disobedient, and deceived. Whether Jewish or Gentile, religious or philosophical, straight-laced or a partier, God saved us because of his mercy. And we hear all the time, we're all pretty good people. We're all doing our best. I laugh a lot because my mom talks about our hometown, and I swear every kid in that hometown was a good kid. They're all good kids. They're doing their best. They're going to turn out. They have good parents. It's all good folks. They're not. None of our towns are, but I swear every kid in that town is a good kid. But God didn't save any of us because of the good things we did. No matter what our background was, you may have been a captain of a sports team. You may have been prom royalty or a valedictorian. You may be wildly successful in business or finances. But before God, we're all broken in our sins, just the same. And the only reason he saved us was because of... His mercy. And when I went to college, I was stuck in those sins. And that background I talk about, I took all that junk and went with me. I didn't have a lot of friendships. I was happy to get away. I was bitter at everyone. And I went as far away as I could and still have in-state tuition, so it was about an hour away. But it was far enough that I could just kind of break off what I could and start new. 
and I was in a relationship I probably shouldn't have been in and drinking a lot and and I met this group of Christians in the dorm there and God was kind to just set me next to them but they had something different they had a real freedom from all those things I was stuck in and all the bitterness I was stuck in and not only that they had prayer groups together right there in the dorm where I was ready to start partying they read their Bibles and it was affecting them they were trying to carry out the word and live it in their life and they had a real relationship with God in a way that brought hope and brought peace and brought freedom and it was shared with me that I could just receive God's mercy for all those things that I was stuck in and God would just invite me into relationship and God would overlook the things I'd done and I was a little overwhelmed just thinking of just all that stuff I mentioned and there was more that God would just have mercy on me and invite me in but I accepted it because I wanted something different. I wanted new life. I didn't want to be in that forever. But it had nothing to do with any righteous things I had done. And in fact, there were so many shameful things in my life. I just had trouble even understanding, God, how can you have mercy for that? How can you accept me in? How can you be like the dad and the prodigal son and just have your arms open when you know all that stuff? And when we really understand that God saved us not because of any righteous thing we'd done, but because of his mercy, it should well something up in our hearts. And it should be thankfulness. Just thinking, I didn't deserve it at all. And you saved me. And you pardoned me from sin. I didn't deserve to have freedom from my old life. I just am thankful for what God did. I've had freedom I haven't, over alcohol. I haven't had a drink in 13 years now. I don't deserve it. It's not my own will. It's not pulling up my bootstraps. It's the mercy and kindness of God. It's Him at work in my life, and I'm thankful for what He showed me. I just even think of that song we sang this morning. We think about, why should I gain from His reward? It, it can get in our heads the wrong way and we can think I deserve this, I'm doing a lot of things and I'm serving at the church and I go every week and if we really stop and think of the mercy of God, well, what a statement that is. Why should I be gaining from the reward Christ deserves for his work on the cross? We shouldn't. We didn't do anything to deserve it. And so finally, all that builds up to one command at the end of that section I talked about. I think it's on the next slide, but it says, This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you, Titus, to insist, or other translations say stress, or teach on these things, so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These things are good and beneficial for everyone. And so finally, he instructs Titus to teach on these things, to teach about the mercy of God, to teach about understanding and develop thankfulness for God's mercy to us. But why did he do that? Why do we need to understand that? Why did they need to understand that? He said, so that those who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. So it should build something in us. And so the last point about his mercy is that in light of God's mercy, we should devote ourselves to loving God with our deeds. So the command to Titus, again, was just to stress and teach these points in a way in the believers that it would produce something. In our lives, God is ultimately looking for devotion to doing what is good in light of his mercy. 
We've been pardoned. We had an eternal sentence that God wiped us clean from. And that mercy should produce something and we should live differently. I want to play a clip from a movie. I'm going to set it up a little bit. It's from the 90s. I thought in my notes and written down, hey, everyone saw this in the 90s and my wife Sarah was like reading through my notes and corrected me. I think men in the 90s saw this movie. It's called Saving Private Ryan. It's a war movie. I don't think women in the 90s were watching this. They had different things. But you may have seen it. But the context is that Ryan's three brothers had all died in World War II, and he was the fourth enlisted, and they had sent home four flags and four letters to his mother. And so someone higher up decided, let's just pull him out of there so we can send one of the sons home, and the mom doesn't get a fourth letter and a fourth flag. And so they send this whole troop out to get him. And this is kind of the end when they get to him, and they've sustained a lot of losses to go find him. Um, so let's play the clip. They're tank busters, sir. P-51s. Angels on our shoulders. What, sir? dusty watching that. War movies and football movies. You get me. But Ryan understood something. 
that day on the bridge when his captain was losing his life and many people had already lost it to save his, that the rest of his life had come with a great price. And you catch this sense by the end that he lived his life in light of trying to honor that sacrifice that was made and living a life that was worthy of it. I get chills watching that scene where he just stands there at the cemetery at the grave of that captain and he just asks his wife to validate him. Tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me it was worth those men dying for me. And she clearly doesn't totally understand what he's going through. But really he's just grappling with, did I live a life that was worthy of that sacrifice? We have a few verses on this next slide. In Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, in chapter 4, verse 1, he said, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. In the letter to the Corinthians church, chapter 6, Paul said, God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Which was talking in terms of sexual sin, but... God paid a high price, and that should affect the way we live back to God. And of course, in this letter to Titus, verse 8 there, the church was to devote themselves to doing good in light of that. And when we consider our condition, when we consider that Jesus died a humiliating and brutal death for us, it was a higher price than the men could have paid in that story, It should move us and move us to something specific. We're no longer working hard to earn something ahead of time. Oh God, I just hope I can go to heaven and not go to hell and I want to come to church a lot and give enough money. No, it's not about that. It's about God's mercy and it's been paid for. And it's about living a life that honors the sacrifice that He made for each of us. And in light of that, is there anything too great God could ask of us when we were bought with that ultimate price? Can He ask too much of our talents or our time or our money? Can He ask us to do something uncomfortable like sharing the gospel? As we face those hard things God calls us into, we need to look at them in light of the mercy that God showed to us and let it well up in good works towards Him. Okay, I warned you up front that this book jumps around because it reads like a letter. So now it'll just do that, and we'll go with it. But we're going to jump to the end. We're going to skip a little section in the middle so we can end in a reasonable time today. But we're going to jump to the end, and it's a little bit of a section that's kind of a closing greeting in some ways. Um, But that's okay. But we'll take from that, and I think there's a few thoughts to close up God will have from us. So let's read this ending here. It says, I am planning to send either Artemis or Tychicus to you. As soon as one of them arrives, do your best to meet at Nicopolis.
for I have decided to stay there for the winter. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos with their trip. See to it that they are given everything they need. Our people must learn to do good by meeting the urgent needs of others. Then they will not be unproductive. Everyone here sends greetings. Please give my greetings to their believers, all who love us. May God's grace be with you all. So it kind of reads like a letter at the end there. And the takeaway I had there uh, on the next slide there is to use those gifts that God has given us to meet the needs of others. And specifically, I highlight that one verse there, verse 14, that our people must learn to do good by meeting the urgent needs of others. Then they will not be unproductive. And there's a few things in that we'll look at. Obviously, our people must learn to do good works, which again, that sure sounds like the end result of God's mercy working in our life is that it should well up in good works. But he goes into one specific way to do good works, which is to meet the urgent needs of others. We'll dig into that in a minute. But finally, at the end, it's included, so that you will not be unproductive. And you first read that and you think, how does productivity and meeting needs of others wrap up? Or is that just kind of like a red herring at the end of the verse? I just stop and think about that one. What does productivity have to do with anything? And when I think about it, I just think there's this element of how productive we are in our lives. And the next slide, it talks about the people left on Crete and what they were kind of like. Uh, He says, even one of their own men, a prophet from Crete, has said about them, the people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. Just kind of some pretty strong words about them that someone else had said. And what does Paul say? He says, this is true. So he just confirms that whole thing. So Titus, reprimand them sternly to make them strong in the faith. So Paul writes about this perception that they're all lazy gluttons and affirms that he believes that to be fairly accurate about this group of people. I don't think it was bad-mouthing them or just gossiping, but I think he was trying to get Titus to thinking in light of, this is the people you're shepherding. You're bringing in people that are likely lazy gluttons and we're teaching them to be productive and to the point where they can help the urgent needs of others. And it makes sense that there would be a command at the end of this letter just to be productive if the predominant thought is that they're lazy gluttons. And in someone's life, I just see levels of responsibility where I think he's going at this. We go from no responsibility to a lot of responsibility over our lives. I think some of you had babies over the last few months. We have Kyrie and Trevor and Isley. There's a few new babies around here. When those babies start out, boy, are they cute, but boy, do they not do much for themselves, do they? They're totally dependent. They need you for clothing and to change the diapers, and they need mom for food, and they need you to put them to bed at the right time, or they just, like, stay up and cry themselves silly. They need you to keep them, when they start crawling, just from electrocuting themselves because that outlet looks very attractive. But we grow, don't we, and becoming more dependent, even over time. Eventually, you have a kid that can just dress themselves and reasonably go in the kitchen and make a sandwich. And that seems like a lot when you've got other young kids, doesn't it? It's good. 
I'll skip some stages, but eventually we become adults. And we're hoping as these kids become adults, right, they learn eventually to go work and be able to pay for food and pay their rent and kind of take care of themselves. And then you hope they grow in responsibility and could even provide for a spouse or kids. And eventually, could they check those boxes and help others? And so I think of this description of a lazy glutton. It's probably someone that's an adult but is not taking much responsibility. They probably need help from others maybe even to help get food to them, because I think of lazy glutton as kind of like sitting there needing more food. They might not even be able to support themselves. But as Christians, the encouragement to us and to them was to be productive. And so the next slide. Paul encouraged the church in Thessalonica... In 1 Thessalonians 4.11, Make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands, just as we instructed you before. And so it should be a goal to be working hard and working with your hands so that you can provide for you and others. And then be able to even provide in a way that you have some access in your life, that every dollar isn't accounted for to get food on the table and every minute of our time isn't accounted for working, that we have freedom to help others. So we must support ourselves and our families. On this next slide, Paul said in his letter to Timothy, he was very strong on this, he said, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Very strong statement he used. But there was a strong call to provide for us and those in our care by working hard. Not to be lazy gluttons. So we should first be working hard to support our own households. And I know a number of you are. I know there's a number of dads in this room working more than one job just to make the ends meet. I know a lot of you that work really hard at one job. And my hats are off to all of you. But it's only after we do that hard work and we're able to support our family that we tend to have room to bless others. I do know people that barely have enough to get by and they're so generous and they they make sacrifices and they're still just giving and giving. And I'm blessed and challenged by them. But in general, if we feel stressed, if we don't know how we're paying for the groceries next month or how we're going to get to everything we need to in our week, we tend to just hunker down and not help others, don't we? At least that's, that's how I work. If I feel pressed on every side, I internalize a little bit. So not to lead unproductive lives, we need to grow in our productivity to the point where we can bless others and grow in our heart to care for others. We're in a culture that's very isolated and independent, don't we? We live in our little space and we're in this Highlands neighborhood and they've torn down houses and made condos and we're very close to each other, but it can feel very far. You can live right next door and feel a thousand miles away from someone because we feel all those responsibilities on our own. We've got to find our own food and we've got to pay our own rent and we've got to make everything go all on our own. And I know just living on a block in the neighborhood here, it's hard to keep up with people enough even to know, did someone move? Wasn't there a family in that house? Did, I haven't seen them in a while. And you find out, oh, someone died down the block and you didn't even know because it's hard to be connected. We just don't talk that much. That's our culture. 
And yet, we're called in the midst of this to meet the urgent needs of others. And specifically, I I think the strongest call would be within the local church that we're to work together as a family to do that. And the New Testament has a lot of descriptions for the church, but one is that we're to be a family together. And for those of you that have, say, both spouses working, if one of you is suddenly out of work, I can't think of any family that would be like, good luck, spouse, you can pay your own bills. I still have a job. No, you'd say, okay, we have half the income. How do we make it work? What do we cut? What do we do? Who, who of us can work more hours? And if your parents were suddenly out of work and couldn't meet, pay their mortgage, I think all of us would figure out, how do we help them? Would we make sacrifices to help those in our family, our parents, or our kids? Certainly. And yet we're called to operate as a family in the church. And we can't just look at it as some organization or some group of people and we're all on our own out there or just hope the pastors know what's going on with a hundred people and every need and I hope they get around and help everyone. I can tell you, I can't keep up with that many people. But we're called together to be helping one another and to meet the urgent needs of others together and to be meeting practical needs in the church. So the next slide... I just thought, how can we meet needs of people in the church? So I just went through a few things I've seen really, just a blessing go around and just things to be thinking about. One is just helping the underemployed or unemployed. Underemployed, I don't know if it was a real term before 2008, but it's our world now. That it's hard to find a job that will pay everything we need, isn't it? It just seems so much more common to be out of work or not have enough work and be scraping by. And if someone in the church is out of work, it shouldn't be good luck to you, go figure it out. It should be kind of like if your spouse was out of church and you figure it out together and you really help and feel a burden. I don't mean someone quit a great job and they wanted to start a business and hope it all works out and they can make a million dollars. Probably you could go back and get a job. But I do know real people that have just been laid off or it's hard to find something or they can't finish school because of the finances and they're just trying to make it all go. And really the pocketbook of Christ and the help of Christ and the hands are going to come from us helping one another. Will you offer money or groceries to someone? Would you help them watch their kids to get job interviews or drive them around or just help in any way you can to someone in that situation? Boy, if we're on our own in that, I think we've missed something as the family of God, haven't we? Another one I put on there is families grieving death. And I wish this was just theoretical. But I know even in the past month, there's two people that have lost their parents in our church family. And there's an immediate need there. Being able to still feed the kids and make life go and figure it out. Even just needing support and tears and hugs and prayers. I know one of those people that had lost a parent, someone just went over and did yard work and cleaned up leaves and got it out just to do something practical for them. And I shared a little bit last time I taught about when our daughter died and I know just so many people in the church were such a blessing to us 
Um, I don't know how we would have gotten through that without people just blessing us and helping us with food and um, just even a believer down the block. Uh, it's a member of another church in town said, you don't need to do any yard work until you feel like it. I'm just going to come by whenever I'm doing it. And I just find him in my yard two times a week doing something. Um, I, I don't know how I would have gotten through some of those things. And I know people even this month are going through that. But just thinking about how can we really bless those people and help with immediate needs that are there. Even getting through little things like cooking dinner becomes a really big thing in the midst of something like that. I put people who are sick on there. I think on that one too, it's not very theoretical in our church. We've got people fighting cancer. I can think of another person that's been in and out of the hospital this year. Are we looking to help those people with those needs? I think our natural response is to want to distance and say, that, that kind of hurts and is icky, and I'd rather just talk about the Broncos or vacations. But we're called to help those people like it was in our own family. And knowing them enough to know what the immediate needs are, it takes some work, it takes some care, it takes some relationship. But God calls us into that. I put families having new babies up there. This is another strong demographic of our church right now. Jeremy, if you've caught the last month, has talked most weeks about adjusting to a second baby in their family or worship leader. I feel you. It takes some adjustment. It takes some extra work. You don't get sleep. The meals just don't get cooked. And it's hard those first few months. You're trying to work and make it go and no one's sleeping. And I, don't, I can't see people, but I don't know where Jeremy went. But I'm thankful for you going through that, just leading worship and serving us every week. Because it takes an effort to do that when we should really be blessing you. I think for bringing just lessons for your life and how the scripture's impacting you through those times. I know for some of those families, meal sign-up lists go around. A lot of you cook the meals and, and bring it over. But what a way to bless someone in a time that you really need help. And I know in our own lives, just think in the last couple weeks, we're due to have another baby next month. And I took a new job a few weeks ago that requires me to be in the office a lot more than I'm used to. And it's in the tech center, so it's not real close to home. And it was like the week I started, suddenly things went just a little haywire with the pregnancy. And Sarah was needing to go in about three times a week to the doctor's office and just make sure our son was still okay. And we were just suddenly a little overwhelmed going, I, I can't really like ask for all this special time off. I just started a job this week. And some of these things, Sarah has to like sit quiet and not be stressed and see how the baby's doing. It's hard to do with two toddlers. So we are just overwhelmed trying to figure out how do we make all those things go. And, and you guys served us. I think a Christine, Greg's wife, just immediately jumped in and offered to watch our kids whenever we could bring them over. Um, she already has six kids at home and is doing school with most of them, and it's really busy. But she said, anytime you want to bring t- the two kids over and up that total to eight, I think that's a daycare, eight kids? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is. But she does that, and she watches them and still tries to get school done. And, and her and Greg have also offered, just can they take the kids just to get us on a date and, and help us? And, 
and we're blessed. And I, I think of Caitlin. I didn't actually see them here today, but she pushed me and, and kept asking, what dates can I get on your calendar? When can I help? Bring them over. And just was kept trying to get dates to help us. And, and so one day last week, Sarah had somehow had this early appointment. She had to see the special doctor, and so they could only get her in at 8.30 in the morning. For those of you with young kids, I don't know, our kids don't like to be out of bed real much before 8 or 8.30, but to get the kids over to someone's house and then make that appointment okay through rush hour it took kind of an early morning. But Caitlin said, just bring them over as early as you want, and she had breakfast ready for them, and she had them through the morning. And then Sarah came back from the appointment at lunchtime, and she had lunch cooked and fed them all. And then to top it off, she had a meal prepared for dinner to send home with Sarah so Sarah didn't have to cook and could rest in the afternoon or get school done with Phoebe. It was just above and beyond. We're kind of overwhelmed by people helping us because we had needs in our life and people just went above to bless us and help us out. I don't think it's just because I'm the pastor guy that people would help with that. I know you bless and serve each other that way. And that's what God calls us into. And we do need to just keep in mind we need to have relationships that are conducive to that. And we need to be close enough to meet those needs. I put that proverb up there, Proverbs 27.10. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother far away. Might not totally fit, but I think the idea is you have to be in close enough relationship that you know what the needs are and you can meet them. I've got a lot of good friends around the country, around the world, that have gone to start other churches and are pastors all over the place. And You know, we'd do anything for each other, but it's real hard if they live across the country. And so there's something about being in close relationship with people that we can meet real needs in each other's lives. And let's call this a shameless plug, but I think this is where our gospel groups fit in. I mentioned that I can't keep up with 100 people, and it's real true. But I can keep up with 20. I can get in your lives. I can know what's going on. I can know when you're sick or need help or pray with you. And I think one of the blessings of that group is you can get in relationships close enough that you can share struggles in a real way and people will care and pray and can meet those needs. So I just throw that out. There's some blessing we get Sunday morning being together, but it gets real hard to meet practical needs in a group this size and to know them. I think that's a great place to be growing in that. Okay, so another way to meet needs on the next slide is to those outside the church. Maybe it'll come up. And really I think of meeting the needs of the hungry and needy. Proverbs 14.31 says, Those who oppress the poor insult their maker, but helping the poor honors him. So somehow God gets honor in the way that we help the poor. And that's a reflection on him. And in light of that, when Paul's saying we should meet immediate needs, other verses like it, when I think of how we could help the poor, I tend to think of that phrase, immediate needs, and thinking of things that help. We can do a lot of things. Usually on the corner, they just want money. It's fine. But I, if I give someone cash, I don't really know what happens to it. 
they can say about whatever they want. I don't know a person if I'm meeting the first time. You're just kind of hoping for the best. So I just think of trying to prioritize things that meet needs like that. And so when I interact with people looking for things, just helping with things like food and blankets and coats and diapers and shelter for the night, a hotel room or rent. People are struggling with staying in a house or apartment. And those are things I can think of that really help meet needs in people's lives. And when I think of especially people in need and people we run into just on the street or come into our church, I think a big part of it is caring and loving for people. Will we stop and talk to someone in need, even if it's uncomfortable? Will we stop and shake their hand? I think of Andy that was coming to our church for a long time. I don't know how many of you caught him. Um, he'd come in early and sit in the cafe and have coffee a lot of weeks and a donut and, and hang out a while. I don't think he ever made it into here to sing or listen to the message, but he would often stick around long enough that it would come through in the cafe, and I think he'd hear a lot of it. Um, but when he, he was homeless, and when he came, I made sure to at least stop and talk to him every week and shake his hand and, and try to pray with him. Sometimes I'd bring, so he had money in the budget, and whatnot, I'd bring extra food or warm things or just offer things to take home with him. And my kids started just making him pictures at home and asked if they could bring him in to Mr. Andy, and so they'd, I don't know how much he wanted a color, coloring sheet of My Little Pony, but he got them. <laughs> Uh, I think it was a good heart for them just to give something that meant something to my girls. And I offered to pray with them and, and sit with them on occasions. And I tried to share. He wouldn't let me go through a whole gospel presentation, but I tried to just sit down and, and just share what I could or share a verse here and there or share a quick gospel message. Um, you know, this about a month ago, we, we thought we should just really get him a gift and bless him. And, and just Sarah went to the store and bought some food and gloves and different things to get ready for the winter. We brought him to the church, and he didn't show up that week. And now it's about a month later, and I don't think he's been back. And, you know, honestly, we don't know how to get in touch with him or where he stays the rest of the week. But I don't know if you think about him, but we're just praying for him every week. God, would you bring him back? Would you give us a way to show him love again? Um... Because I think we need to grow in that heart. Can, can we love people? He's one that's real practical and walked right in our door and, and would want to talk to us and have coffee. And There's a lot more on the streets around here if you go around, but will we stop and show God's love to them? I also want to think of a few things, or just hit on a few things we can help as a church together. Um, I put the Firehouse Mercy Ministry up there. Something we don't talk about very often or do announcements for. It's a ministry that's in the background here. Um, there's a number of you involved with that. Most of the time they don't get on stage or get recognized very often for what they do. And most of you might not even know what's going on or what they do because a lot of it's behind the scenes. But I first want to acknowledge that just God rewards those things we do for those that are in need and can't pay us back. And, and all you that are doing things behind the scenes, God's going to reward you for that. Um, one of the more public things we do that you do know about is Operation Christmas Child, which just kind of wrapped up and Greg mentioned at the start there. But this is a ministry through the Samaritan's Purse organization run by Franklin Graham. It's just a real neat 
organization that we team up with. We used to do some local things in our neighborhood, and then our neighborhood became really, really rich around us, and there's not many people that need a spare Christmas gift in this neighborhood anymore. Okay, good. So, so one of the things we did was pack shoe boxes, and they were in the hallway. And we mentioned this before, but a number you took those home and brought them back, and I think we collected 25 just for all of you taking them home and bringing them. And then um, the Connect group did a whole thing this week and collected number, another 42. So I think it was 67 total of just shoe boxes that we went and delivered and and those will get packaged up and sent around the world just with gospel presentations and help kids that don't have presents or a lot of other things um, and also yeah like Kenneth mentioned there Jenny coordinated a day for a number of people to go help with a packaging plant near the airport uh, in December the last I'd heard she was all full and was turning people away I think she might have found a way to open up some more spots but there was just a great response to that. You can find Jenny and talk to her about that. Is she here? Right there. As I said, I can see a few people. but Yeah, there's still some spots for that, so you might be able to go in, in December and team up for that. But I'm just really encouraged by the church's response on that, of helping people through that ministry. It's one thing we do. Um, another thing to highlight on there is the... The Joy House, the second one, um, it's a local Christian's women's shelter uh, through a network called Providence Network. And this is really just about moms and their children leaving domestic violence situations. And they live in a community, in a house, uh, in a hidden location, in a two-year program. It's hidden so that the people that were um, participating in that violence can't find them again so they can be secure. But they enjoy fellowship and meals with other moms in there, and they have an in-house Bible study with prayer and accountability. They receive training of how to go get jobs and, and get back on their feet. And they're tied to a local church in Denver, not affiliated with us, but just doing good things to help them. And we just bring them a meal once a month, which in some ways isn't a big thing, but a lot of you help with that and really just get in your kitchen and cook a meal for 40 people and really blessing them with a meal. Sometimes I think they get meals like that. Sometimes they just go into the kitchen and try to come up with something. So I know it's a blessing and a really powerful way just to, to help them in a practical way, but it takes some effort in a normal residential kitchen to cook a meal for 40 people, I think. Some of you might try that out for Thanksgiving this week if you've got a big family. But it takes a little effort to get that out of there. Thank you for all of you that are involved with that. I think God's honored and blessed by that. Another one just to hit on quick we've partnered with before is Alternative Pregnancy Center. It's a good one in town, but we usually have them come set up a table and speak at our church one day a year. This is a good ministry that is just doing work to provide um, support for women with unplanned pregnancies. Just with a biblical perspective of counseling and support. There's a lot of organizations and places out there that have a lot of worldly info that come into them. So it's great just to have somewhere that is reaching out to those women to provide just a biblical perspective and support and prayer um, and ways just for truth and support and love through whatever decisions they make, uh, even if it's counseling on bad decisions and, and fighting to save the lives of babies. So we have them in and, and help raise some money with them once in a while. And then finally, I just put meeting... 
the needs of people who call and email. But I'm thankful for some of those bigger organizations. I have a heart to help a lot of those people. How do we help kids around the world that don't have money? And, you know, practically it's, it's hard on our own to pull off something like that in a church this size. So I'm encouraged by finding organizations like that we can team up with and, and we'll continue to because we have this calling to be involved with that and really get help out and get the gospel out to the ends of the earth. So I'm thankful for ministries like that we can team up with. Um, just the last thing to mention on that is that we do meet needs of people who call and email as well. Um, or people that come into the church with needs. A lot of weeks I'll get at least one email to the church asking for money. Um, there's just a lot of people out there with needs. and um, Like I mentioned, we do try to prioritize gifts that meet immediate needs instead of just giving a check. We try to, a lot of times I've gone to the grocery store and actually bought groceries and given them to people or people in the mercy ministry have. Um, other times we buy diapers to help or formula or other things like that. We've paid for hotel rooms for people, um, help with rent, other things like that, just to help people. We're a smaller church, so we probably don't have the budget of a church of a 1,000 to do that, but we, we help as we can. And really, we just have one requirement if we get a phone call. We just ask, would you come up to a Sunday service so we can meet you and pray with you and, and give you the gift? Um, unfortunately, that weeds out a ton of people that email just to have any gift, any step to come meet us, but... That's really the only requirement we have is will you come here and and meet meet us and come on a Sunday morning. But that's just another thing we do to help people. And I mentioned that if you're interested in any of those things, you're welcome to help with the Mercy Ministry. You can talk to me. Really, what we're doing that list is a byproduct of this is how much bandwidth we have with the people there. And uh, we're open to other ways to serve or if there's other good things going on in town or around the world. Let me know if you'd love to be involved with that ministry or have other ways we could be serving. Probably a factor of knowing something good going on and being willing to help with it or organize, tie into other things. But um, just be thinking about that and praying for the people that help with that as well. Um, Again, I'm thankful for everyone that's serving and doing that. And, uh, you know, our main mission of our church, or what's on the side of our building, is to reach the world with Jesus, starting here. And we focus a lot on, on our outreach and how are we getting the gospel out and doing that. But I also think there's another mission here that we will give an account on someday of how do we do loving each other as we had needs? How do we do loving people in our community as they have needs. And so I think it's a very important arm of the church in the eyes of the Lord. And and I will just mention there's a lot of other good Christian organizations doing good things for the gospel around the world. Um, personally, Sarah and I are, on top of our giving to the church, are involved with finding organizations and giving to things that are doing good things like that because I think it's one way we can answer that call and be involved with things. I'm just even being in America. Um, I'm not going to mention anything, but feel free to ask me questions if you ever want to know. But I, I do just look at it as each of us have a real call of how do we respond to the Lord on that. Um, and I think it's an important call for us to do. And one last comment is that when I think of urgent needs, we tend to think of food and clothing. And I think that's what people are asking for, food, clothing, money, shelter. But really the most urgent need in most of their lives is the gospel, isn't it? To really know how to be connected with God, how to have relationship. And 
I think we can see those gifts to people as a way to open the door for the gospel. I put Proverbs 18.16 up here. Giving a gift can open doors. It can give access to important people. And the Proverbs say when we meet the needs of others, when we meet the urgent needs of others, those gifts can open the door to more important people, to share about important things, to share the gospel. And I think there are a numerable amount of groups out there you can find that are trying to feed people around the world or do good things, build hospitals or schools. But we want to partner with ones and we want to be people who are bringing the gospel with that gift. Um, We should think about our giving this way. If we're taking the time to stop and talk to someone and get involved with their life and give... It provides an open door to share about the gospel somewhat. And really that's people's greatest need, whether they know it or not. And even if someone won't agree to go through a whole gospel presentation and sit down and go through something for a half an hour, I at least try to use that gift as a way to get my foot in the door enough to share at least a verse or a two-minute presentation or just something they can know about God's love for them and how to respond to God and the gospel. Or just giving out a gospel track with that food. Because their greatest need is knowing Jesus Christ and knowing the gospel, along with their physical needs. And so in closing today, um, we need to just remember the mercy God's shown in our life. Be thankful for that sacrifice he made for us. Be thankful this Thanksgiving week as you celebrate. I gave you your Cliff Notes cheating answer for what you're thankful for. We're celebrating thankfulness for America, for coming together. It's a lot of good things like that, but be celebrating and thankful for the mercy of our Lord this week. And let it stimulate you towards good deeds. And even good deeds that help the poor. Uh, It's probably a hard time for a lot of people this week. Um, And I think there's important things that Paul was exhorting the church to carry out and meeting needs for one another and helping one another. And we want to walk in obedience to that encouragement together as the church body.